Welcome to DLSN, a podcast brought to you by McGuire Woods and Seven Mile Advisors. DLSN promotes the advancement of women in private equity and finance through conversations with women leaders and rising stars in the private equity and finance space. These conversations provide both insights and practical takeaways to inform your deal work and enhance the culture of your organization. If you're ready to drive the industry toward a more inclusive and diverse environment, then it's time to come to the table. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Deal Us In, brought to you by McGuire Woods and Seven Mile Advisors. Carolyn Trenda, one of our benefits partners, is here today, along with Don Stetter, one of our employment specialists. Carolyn and Don are joining us today to discuss developments in benefits and employment matters in light of and because of the pandemic. Thanks so much for joining us today, Carolyn and Don, and lending your expertise. Would you like to provide some additional background about yourself and your practice? This is Don Stetter. In terms of a little bit of background about me, I have been practicing labor and employment law at this point for for just over 20 years and have worked with clients, you know, in a broad range of industries. I do a lot of work closely with Kelsey and the private equity team and help that team diligence various companies for compliance on labor and employment issues. The other side of that coin is supporting various portfolio companies when labor and employment issues come up. And obviously, as we're going to talk about today, COVID-19 has dictated a lot of the last 18 months of my life and happy to share some of the lessons learned that we've picked up over the past 18 months. Great. And this is Carolyn Trenda. I am partner in the Employee Benefits Group at McGuire Woods. I've been doing benefits work for almost 20 years and have been at McGuire Woods actually since I became an attorney. So I've been here for a while now. The Employee Benefits Group at McGuire Woods primarily assists employers of all sizes in three areas of what we consider employee benefits practice, your retirement plans, health and welfare plans, and executive compensation. I primarily work in the retirement plan and health and welfare plan space. We also support our private equity group in, as Dawn does, with diligencing client and prospective transactions and making sure there's compliance and planning on a go-forward basis for benefit plans as deals are finalized. So I, too, have had lots of client issues come up during COVID. Employee benefits is an ever-changing area for anyone who reads the popular press. There's, there's always changes happening in Congress with respect to health care benefits. The gift that is the Affordable Care Act keeps on giving. There's always uh, changes with retirement plans as well. So it is certainly an area like labor and employment of, of constant change. So we're going to bring a little bit of that discussion to you today. Carolyn and Don, thanks so much for joining us today. I'm excited to talk to you about all the developments that you've seen with respect to COVID-19 and legislation and regulations that have been implemented and, you know, also just employers trying to deal with regulatory changes and the realities presented by the pandemic. So, to start, I'd like to ask, how have each of you seen COVID-19 challenging the businesses that you serve? This is Dawn. I mean, I think 
COVID-19 came on sort of like a tidal wave for employers, in my practice space, it challenged employers both large and small in almost every conceivable way. All of a sudden, this pandemic comes in place. There's federal, state, and local governments that are issuing laws and proclamations about when people can come into work and the stay-at-home orders and trying to figure out how to comply with that. At the same time, you know, employers trying to figure out, can we successfully run our businesses at home and, and what challenges are, are those presenting? Some essential businesses had to figure out how to get employees into the workplace safely. And all through this whole time frame, there wasn't a lot of guidance from the state, the federal agencies where we might have expected some guidance. OSHA, you know, had OSHA's the government agency that regulates workplace safety. They gave out some guidance, but there was, there was nothing mandatory. So a lot of employers sort of, especially at the beginning, had to figure out how to operate their businesses safely. On the other side of the coin, and I certainly have not, have not seen anything like this. I'm sure Carolyn kind of touched on this as well, or can touch on this as well. I remember just sort of during the early months of March 2020, just spending, you know, 16 hours a day on the phone with different clients trying to figure out how to furlough employees and essentially shut down their businesses on a dime while preserving the ability to come back online. And sort of, you know, in the months after March 2020, it's sort of been a slow progress of bringing businesses back online, doing it in a safe way, sort of dealing with employees who are not really understanding necessarily things like masking requirements. A lot of times I'm faced with questions about vaccinations. Should I, as an employer, require all my employees to be vaccinated? If someone's not vaccinated, what do I do? How do I handle that? And so COVID-19 continues to present a wealth of issues. I think the clients that I've been working with have done a really excellent job. We're all working together to sort of bring things back online, but it's certainly been very transformative over the last 18 months or so. Yeah, I would certainly echo Don's sentiments of the fact that there were immediate COVID effects, immediate challenges, and then what we're dealing with now, which is certainly more the return to work issues. On the benefit side, you know, the immediate issues were certainly what to do with layoffs and furloughs. You had lots of employers trying to furlough employees and maintain access to benefits, particularly maintain access to a group health plan, an employer-provided group health plan, and the mechanics of doing that, whether there was going to be wage continuation and trying to maintain pre-tax deductions versus having employees pay after tax for their continued health care to those employers who weren't going to be able to continue providing employer health care. Of course, COBRA would kick in, which actually leads to one of the current challenges, which is a COBRA subsidy, which I'll touch on later. And then certainly as we, as we progress past March of 2020, that became the issue of COVID testing for employers that wanted to get some folks back to work, certainly industries, manufacturing and such, who weren't um, able to do work from home, how to do COVID testing, 
as Don and I will probably talk about ad nauseum, both the Families First Coronavirus Relief Act, which you should never try to say too quickly, and the CARES Act provided some federal oversight, some federal guidance for providing leave plans and testing, COVID testing, in the employer-to-employee context. It's incredible the number of developments that you both named in just kind of like our introductory question. There's just so much substance there. I guess one of the things that I'm particularly interested in with women primarily, for better or for worse, often caretaking responsibilities falling on women, one of the things that comes to mind to me is what changes have you seen with respect to leave programs during COVID? And I guess, John, I would start with you on this one. And Carolyn, feel free to weigh in if you'd like as well. That's a really interesting and obviously complex question. So, you know, if we dial back to, to February 2020, there very, very few states had laws on the books that would allow people to take time off for what you would consider caregiving for children who didn't have serious health conditions. It, it just isn't something that was really contemplated. And so, you know, in the spring of 2020, Congress passed the, the Families First Coronavirus Relief Act, or the FFCRA, which I'm going to take the liberty of using the acronym <laughs> rather than saying the whole thing. It gets a little laborious on a Monday here. But in any event, when Congress passed that, you know, part of what was a little bit revolutionary about that is it came in two different pieces. You know, one, there was expanded paid sick leave at a federal level, which had never happened before. And the second was an expansion of the FMLA to allow people to take time off for caregiving responsibilities. The one small or rather big, actually, footnote was that it only applied to businesses with 500 employees or less. It was interesting in that, you know, the bigger employers who might have a little bit more ability to bounce back from having people take time off were not covered under the law, but smaller employers were. There was a lot of sort of back and forth about why that was. That's sort of what we ended up with. And so from April 2020 to December, the end of the year 2020, smaller employers were tasked with complying with Families First which then kind of flows into today where even with, you know, the amount of legislation that's being passed in Congress right now, the FFCRA right now is completely voluntary. So nobody has to comply with it anymore. In my experience of what a lot of our clients have done is they've either picked and choose. They've said, okay, well, we're going to provide the extra paid sick leave and not the expanded FMLA leave. But hopefully as sort of vaccination rates improve and the numbers go down, we'll see less of that. So that, that was a little bit about how things evolved on the federal landscape. But equally as important and equally as challenging for a lot of clients were state laws that were coming up, particularly, I always say, on the coast, West Coast, California, East Coast, New York, New Jersey, that required employers to give time off. And, and in some respects, some states passed laws that sort of sat on top of the FFCRA that require larger employers to provide time off. And, you know, that was obviously a challenge and continues to be a little bit of a challenge for employers, particularly as a lot of schools have remained closed or in hybrid models. And there's just a lot more caregiving needs through this COVID era 
than prior times or prior generations with working parents' space. It's been a very, very chaotic time to kind of keep up with all of that and to figure out jurisdictionally what might apply and what leave might be available, what the schools are doing. And a lot of times it changes on a dime. You know, schools went offline very quickly. They're coming back online in different fashions in different parts of the country. So within a one company, if you have offices in different states, there may be different rules in different states that, you know, somebody's got to be tasked with with keeping on top of. So it's been a very busy and challenging time for I know a lot of employers and clients deal with all of the myriad of leave issues that exist. Like John, this is a truly fascinating area for myself as well in the benefit space because as John indicated, quite a few of these issues are certainly regulated on the state level. And benefits, for the most part, is a federal question. ERISA, which is the statute that governs benefit plans, is a federal statute. And most of the incentive for an employer to provide benefits is tax incentive, which, of course, is also primarily a federal question. So when we get things like the FFCRA and the CARES Act, a lot of the benefits piece of it is, in fact, the tax piece. For example, the program that John was talking about that came through with the the FFCRA, the primary benefit of that to an employer with fewer than 500 employees was tax credit. And so, you know, we looked to, in the benefits space, we looked to a lot of these federal initiatives, and they're still out there for some sort of federal paid family leave requirement and what that would do for employers from the tax perspective. And as Don rightly indicated, many of these, all of these thus far in the federal level have been voluntary, right? They haven't been mandatory. So that should be interesting to see how that develops over time. We'll also say there are a couple tax programs or, or programs that employers can provide to employees outside of the paid family leave context for caretakers that, again, do have um, tax effects. So, for example, during the outbreak of COVID in in March and and April, we had a few clients that did leave donation plans. In other words, employees that had excess vacation would donate their paid vacation days to a pool that other employees could then use. We had a few clients that did that, and there were tax rules that you have to meet for that. There are also employers that increased as a matter of policy the number of paid vacation days or the number of of vacation hours that employees could take. Of course, that has tax effects as well because those are then days of vacation pay that individuals would take as normal paid work days. There are also issues there. And then one other thing that some large employers particularly offer that was enhanced during the COVID-19 pandemic and is is probably still enhanced are the access to care programs, babysitting programs, structured as benefit plans sometimes by many employers, and also increases to employers' dependent care flexible savings accounts, which are, are voluntary contributions through a cafeteria plan to pay for dependent care those have actually been a little bit in flux because, of course, during COVID-19, a lot of dependent care centers, daycare centers, shut down. 
And so there was lots of flexibility given by the IRS in guidance released last year and then in guidance and legislation issued this year to provide higher limits this year and to provide some flexibility with how prior salary deferrals made in 2020 could potentially be used in 2021 because of of closure facilities in 2020. So there's lots of stuff out there for those folks who contributed to dependent care flexible spending accounts. Of course, those, again, not mandatory, voluntary for employers to have. A lot of this is, as Don indicated, very flexible. That's really interesting. And I mean, I guess given the circumstance and how the pandemic affected different various industries and the size of employers, different size employers, completely differently, that flexibility is probably something that is helpful to the employers and the employees and what they're experiencing in their, you know, day-to-day lives if they try to navigate life inside that work-from-home context where their kids may be at home, where their parents may need additional help, all of those factors. That was actually my next question was regarding what changes you'd see in the caretaking space. I don't know, Don, do you want to weigh in on that as well? Yeah, and, and, you know, I think you alluded to a really important point that I, I don't want to gloss over, too, is, and then this is just not in the labor and employment context, the pandemic has hit different groups of people unevenly. Some people are impacted in different ways than others, and I think depending on what type of business you're running, you could be, employers are facing very vastly different issues. People, companies that provide essential services, it's a lot harder to provide employees flexibility because they have jobs that require them to be in person. And so it's remote work is great, but a lot of times that's sort of unevenly distributed amongst sort of white collar employees. So, you know, I think that the employers who have essential workers have been sort of doubly challenged, one, just dealing with the pandemic, and then two, trying to figure out how to support employees who have to be at work, but maybe their kids are at home and, you know, they don't have anybody who's a caregiver who can can watch them. And, and those challenges, I think, and when I get that call, those challenges are the hardest to work through. I think everybody's trying to do the best they can. And I think a lot of the clients I've worked with have tried to be flexible with time off, allowing people time to get the right caregiving structures in place maybe providing, you know, a list of resources to where somebody might be able to access childcare rather. But it's very difficult when you have a group of employees who need to be at work. Where it's a more white-collar type job, where people are able to be remote, I think it's a little bit easier. I've seen a lot of clients sort of ease up to the idea that there might have to be more flexible rules about when somebody logs in and when somebody logs out. I think the clients who've had the most success are clients who, you know, are communicating with their employees, expectations are clear, and that there's a little bit of grace associated with everything, understanding that, you know, people who have caregiving responsibilities, those responsibilities don't fit neatly into before 9 a.m. and after 5 p.m. And and like I think Carolyn had mentioned, you know, I've seen some clients partner with various concierge services to help employees access the help they need. One thing that we've seen probably a growth of in the last 10 years or so is some employers providing 
subsidized childcare, whether it's through sort of a national company like care.com and providing people with 10 free days of childcare to help with childcare, elder care, whatever needs you might have. You know, that's something that has evolved rather recently and then has expanded a little bit during COVID-19. But all around, it's, it's a pretty challenging time because the needs are so great. It's not just, you know, childcare. But it's making sure you don't, you're not sick or that everybody stays healthy and that if you do bring someone in the home as an employer, you're providing that subsidized care, that person isn't going to bring COVID into someone's house. So the, the challenges are really, really complex. I think that's right. And I mean, even just trying to make time to get people to appointments, to make sure everyone's healthy, to have access to those resources. I mean, that's a challenge in and of itself. I wonder, and I think this is another area that that you've probably seen some change. What changes have you seen around telehealth options for benefit plans and employers using through the course of the pandemic in light of the fact that we so much of our lives have gone remote? Yeah, so telehealth has really exploded during COVID, and I think it's it's actually going to be a lasting change post-COVID. So telehealth was always in a pretty interesting spot from an employer health plan perspective because we've actually never received a concrete guidance from the Department of Labor as to whether telehealth in and of itself, standing alone, is a group health plan. We always kind of took the position that it probably was, the services it, it provided, especially for telehealth services that were diagnostic in nature, which many are now, rather than, you know, close, similar to a, an employee assistance program or an EAP, which just, you know, is a referral program, which can potentially not be a, a group health plan. Without getting too, too much further into the regulatory weeds, because they're really complex, we were able to get guidance, again, towards the beginning of the pandemic that clarified that when telehealth was provided by an employer, that it could be provided without the application of a deductible, for example, which is really important for people, for example, who are in high deductible health plans, that they didn't have to satisfy a deductible to get access to telehealth. And so people could use telehealth almost as a preventive service, which is critical in how people could get care when they couldn't actually go to a physician's office. Within the CARES Act, that, that, was, that was provided. And so the, the question will be whether that will be extended, right, beyond the national emergency period, whether telehealth will be seen more as a preventive service, more as a routine application of healthcare, and whether in the long run that will help with the cost of an employer plan, which, as many of you probably know, your employer's group health plan, particularly for those employers that provide a self-funded or self-insured group health plan, the employer's group health plan is one of the largest, if not the largest, compensation costs for an employer, particularly for a large employer. So, you know, having the cost of, of the plan to the employer be contained by having people seek preventive care rather than having people's injuries and issues get worse and have it be a more significant disease or a more significant cost to the plan is really in everybody's best interest, not just the employees um, because they get the care that they need, 
but also in the employers because they're not paying a cost of a larger plan claim because the employee was able to, to get their needs addressed. So the evolution of telehealth really actually has the potential for longstanding improvement of, of both employee care and employer plans. That's an excellent point, Carolyn. Certainly, you would think that having more stakeholders aligned is indicative of telehealth having that potential for lasting change. What other laws, regulations, or developments under the CARES Act or otherwise have you seen in your respective areas of expertise that are affecting the businesses you serve? So, this is awesome. There's a lot. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> if, if we're sort of talking about COVID, I mean, it can range from things like, do I have to require everybody to wear a mask? What is the local law saying about, you know, how many you're, you're conducting a business in person? What are the occupancy thresholds? I remember anecdotally sort of at the beginning of the crisis, I, I kept getting calls from employers who did operate essential businesses, you know, like a group of anesthesiologists, and they're like, can you help us write a letter explaining that our employees are essential employees in case they get pulled over by the police. And I, it, it just struck me when I would get those questions, how unusual the situation we were all living from. Like, I just couldn't like grasp that around my mind that somebody would need to show proof that they were allowed to be outside of their home. I just was like a very interesting construct. So obviously those kind of laws, what do we do have to do to get people together? You know, is it possible to get people together? Then there's the whole host of, and we all kind of talked about this a little bit, about what the leave laws are. Do I live in a jurisdiction where there's required paid sick leave? If there is required paid sick leave, can we, should we, or can we, or do we have to, you know, allow people to take their paid sick leave for caregiving responsibilities? Are there any other laws in place that restrict us or require us to provide paid leave when people, you know, take time off? And then that sort of dovetails into the, uh-oh, I've had an employee who's been exposed to COVID. How long do they stay out of the workplace? What is the requirement? What does the CDC say? What does the governor of the state where I operate say? What does this, the mayor say? So there's a, it's just a really complex network of laws that deal with almost every aspect of being an employer. And, you know, interestingly, on top of all this, with all the remote work, I think a lot of companies have had to deal with constructs of, you know, data privacy. How do we keep our information confidential? What what are the requirements there to make sure if someone's accessing our computer systems that they're doing so in a safe way? If you have non-exempt employees who are working from home, how are we tracking time, making sure that employees are paid for all the time that they're working? You know, that's for non-exempt employees, I think, could be a huge issue. So almost every aspect of an employer's business, I think, has been touched by COVID and all the myriad of laws and regulations that has sort of grown out of this, this era, trying to keep compliant with all of it. It's been very complex. Yeah, in the benefits world, we've had certainly quite a bit of COVID-related legislation as well. We've had lots of non-COVID-related um, legislation. We could probably Don and I separately could probably do entire podcasts on that with our in our respective practice areas. But to, just to touch on some of the COVID-related things that have popped up, certainly right now through the end of this month, most employers with 20 or more employees are dealing with the COBRA subsidy that came out of the ARP 
EPA, the COVID stimulus part four, I think, the American Rescue Plan Act. The COBRA subsidy, to put a very fine point on it, provides for 100% of the premium cost for six months of coverage from April 1st to September 30th for those who were involuntarily terminated or had an involuntary reduction of hours in the last 18 months. So as you can imagine, that's a big lift for employers to determine who they have involuntarily terminated or who had an involuntary reduction in hours such that they have become eligible for COBRA, and then make sure that those employees know that they have access to a COBRA subsidy, and then claim the credit for that subsidy. There's lots of issues there. I'm just going to leave it there because it's a hugely complicated thing. But that's primary on folks, on employers' brains in the welfare plan space, certainly for the next couple of weeks. To John's point about what do employers do when people come back or report to their employer that they actually have COVID, there has been HIPAA questions about that. Most of the time, from the benefits perspective, HIPAA is not implicated because HIPAA is, of course, a statute that affects the employer's group health plan. And typically, the information about someone's COVID diagnosis does not come from the group health plan. It usually either comes from the individual themselves or from some other employer-based systems, not the group health plan. But if it came through the group health plan, we'd have HIPAA concerns. But people usually raise the HIPAA specter anyway of does HIPAA apply. So we've certainly gone through that question many times. And the last thing I would touch on that's COVID-specific is the vaccination. At the beginning of the vaccine rollout, there were a lot of questions about whether employers would be providing vaccines, similar to the way that employers provide flu shots. The provision of vaccines by employers to employees, again, raises lots of questions about whether that is a group health plan and the myriad of regulations that an employer group health plan has to comply with under ERISA or whether the vaccines could be structured and given to people, employees that were not currently participating in the employer's group health plan, perhaps as part of an employee assistance plan, an EAP. And so there's lots of issues to work through there. It just so happens that at the beginning of the vaccination effort, most of the vaccines were being administered by public health entities and hospitals and now retail pharmacies. So perhaps the employer providing vaccines will not be as big of an issue as we all thought it might be at the beginning. But who knows? That could change. That could change if the COVID vaccine requires a booster and or becomes more like the flu shot. Carolyn, I, I have one quick question for you on the COBRA subsidy because I get this a lot. We talked about, you know, the COBRA subsidy being available for those who are involuntarily terminated. Yep. It's not just applying to those employees who are involuntarily terminated due to a COVID reason, right? It's correct. It's a broader application correct. than that, isn't it? Correct. I think that's super back, interesting. Yeah, and it goes back 18 months. So you could have someone who lost their job, who was involuntarily terminated in November 2019, well before COVID was anything that anyone was concerned about, who would only get free COBRA for effectively the month of April, but would have access to subsidized COBRA, to fully subsidized COBRA. 
You also have some folks who may have been involuntarily terminated even long before that, but incurred a disability during their COBRA period. So there's lots of, I mean, the, the fact patterns are crazy here on the COBRA subsidy. We last week received guidance from the IRS in the form of 86 questions and answers. So that's just <laughs> of how complex that couldn't possibly be. And weren't the, the provisions of it applicable before that guidance came out? So employers yeah. have been sort of spinning yeah. their wheels a little bit for the yeah. last month or so? Yeah, so the statute has the subsidy effective, like I said, April 1st, and requires employers to get notices out 60 days after the effective date, which is why I'm saying the next, this week, is very stressful for employers because the guidance from the IRS with those 86 questions and answers just came out last week. So they had exactly two weeks to get their COBRA administrators to get those notices finalized and out the appropriate people. So even though COVID is waning, certainly the legislative and regulatory responses to it are just the hits keep on coming. And so I thought I just found that, you know, even clients with really sophisticated general counsel, they're not necessarily aware of all the ins and outs with the COBRA subsidy. So certainly something that's on a lot of people's radar right now. Definitely, definitely. I had a, a long client call last week with one of my clients who stated that this was definitely a subject that you need to have a wine and cheese during the client call about it. I mean, you, you really, <laughs> you just need to, to take deep breaths. There is an element of, and I think Don, you touched on this in your earlier discussion and um, leave programs and caretaking and the response is just Generally, I think on many levels, one of good faith. Are employers acting in good faith? Are they just trying to do their best to comply with the law that they know is out there, with the law as it is changing, and not acting in bad faith or, you know, to use a legal term with unclean hands, right? And as long as people are acting in good faith and doing their best to comply with this, with the changing regulations and statutes, I think there's a sense that. Some of this is going to pass. Some of this is going, like telehealth, for example, I think has the potential to go beyond the pandemic, and that will be very interesting to see what, what goes beyond the pandemic. I don't want to take a step because the, the, currently you just provided with me with the perfect setup for the next question that I have. But before I move on and just going along with good faith and thinking about when this episode may come out, we may be past the deadline for sending out the notices and things for COBRA. And for compliance with that guidance, I guess if an employer is listening to this and they've missed that deadline, is there anything that they can do at this point or what would you suggest that they do? Try to comply as soon as possible. It's a six-month subsidy, so there's no correction program. You just have to, you just have to do it. I don't think that there isn't any indication in the guidance that was released about correction programs or relief. There are penalties for not providing notices in compliance with deadlines set by COBRA. There are statutory penalties. I would imagine those will apply because there's no forgiveness for that in the regulations. So if someone is listening to this and didn't send out what we're calling ARP notices for the COBRA subsidy, they should contact someone as soon as possible um, to minimize that exposure. But I don't know very many employers that haven't kind of been on top of this it's been something that's been out there as a potential basically ever since 
COVID started. It certainly was a feature of early drafts of the CARES Act, and so it is something that certainly has been on folks' radar for many, many months. We had such a wonderful discussion with Carolyn and John. We're actually going to pause here and follow up with a second part to our conversation where we'll be looking forward at what may come out of the pandemic from an employment or benefits perspective. We hope you'll join us for that second part. Thank you for joining us at the table for this episode of DLSN. If you have a recommendation for an inspiring interviewee, a question you'd like us to ask, or a topic you would like to hear covered, or if you'd like to tell us about women-focused initiatives in the field, please go to our website at www.dlsnpodcast.com. We look forward to hearing from you.